Good afternoon to all out there in Facebook land. It's Bill Allen from Tyler, Texas, which has been a very chilly and um, a very strange Tyler, Texas over the last uh, week or so. And uh, we are uh, broadcasting uh, our Bible study on the Gospel of Mark this afternoon. And I uh, want you to know I'm broadcasting from my home where we actually have running water and electricity. <laughs> that hasn't been the case for everyone in Tyler and the surrounding uh, counties through these last uh, week of winter storms. Uh, interestingly enough, we set a few records for record colds for the day and one day set the record for the coldest day ever in the history of Tyler as far back as they've been keeping records. I believe that was six or seven degrees below zero and that's crazy to say that in Tyler, Texas. However, uh, it's not typically like that, I can tell you, but it has been this last week and many uh, lost power, lost electricity. And so our hearts certainly go out to them. Thankfully, Joyce and I always had electricity here that was such a blessing, which enabled us to stay home uh, this week. Many others had to seek shelter uh, elsewhere because of that. Uh, but we did lose water, and uh, there was no running water at all. And now we do have uh, seemingly normal water pressure. However, the authorities have said because the electricity was out and the power plant, the water plant was off, and the water was not being fed through the system that uh, they want uh, to do some te tests and check and make sure that everything is okay. So we don't have uh, the uh, go ahead to uh, drink water from the tap or the or the faucets. Uh, but thankfully, Joyce and I had plenty of bottled water, and that's a blessing. Thanks to my wonderful, uh, very smart uh, wife, and uh, we're we're doing uh, we're doing just fine. Wouldn't want to be this way for too very long, but we are okay now. Uh, had a great, a wonderful worship assembly this morning. A lot of folks worshiping online, some there in person, and that was a great blessing to be together. After last Sunday, when we had to cancel uh, all together and had a, a previous service that we put online, and that was a, a great blessing to be able to do that, to be able to do things like this study in a time of kind of strange things going on. A lot of folks have been uh, sheltering at home. A lot of folks have been staying in and not doing much and uh, trying to be safe and be healthy, and that's a, that's a really good thing. But just wanted to give you a little update on the Allens. We're hoping that by tomorrow and possibly Tuesday at the latest, uh, our city officials and uh, the utility companies will give us the green light that the water is good and we're uh, good to go and, and back to a more post-COVID <laughs> normal. Uh, so uh, we appreciate everyone's prayerfulness for us and for others in this area and in the state of Texas that have been hit especially hard and other states as well that have suffered through these uh, winter storms over the last week or so. Um, and it's good to see some folks joining in with our little study today. Hello to my friend and sister in North Carolina, Grace Hepler. Nice to see you. Always great to see your name on there. Uh, Elizabeth and Myron Granberry, love you and miss you all uh, so very much. Uh, Larry and Lynn Murphy, same ditto for that. Uh, glad, to, glad to have you and to see you all uh, here. And of course, my dear and wonderful friend and sister Barbara Kasky right here in Tyler. What an inspiration and encouragement uh, you are to me and to so many others. Uh, today, we're talking from Mark chapter six. 
Uh, Mark chapter 6 is a little bit of a longer chapter perhaps, but a chapter that has some familiar but uh, some sense challenging stories about Jesus' life uh, and ministry. And really they center around the theme of, uh, of power. And so this, uh, this afternoon I'm asking the question as we go through Mark chapter 6, what exactly is real power? Uh, it's a timely lesson, <laughs> a timely question for those of us here in Texas who realize that uh, electric power is not something to be taken for granted. And uh, I want to especially give a shout out to all of those wonderful workers who have been trying to get things fired back up to uh, help ease the the tension in the state and in the communities by working tirelessly in the worst of conditions uh, to bring power and electricity back to all of the communities here in Texas and those who are doing the same and uh, with our uh, water supply trying to get that uh, back online and back going through all the pipes and all the plants and back into the homes and the businesses uh, making sure now that it is okay uh, for everyone to uh, to drink and we we take that for granted. I mentioned in the sermon time this morning, West Irwin Church of Christ here in Tyler, that uh, talk, gave, presented memories of my time in uh, in Ukraine uh, back in, started going there in 98 with our wonderful uh, Woodland West Church of Christ in Arlington. Went for a few years there working with a, uh, a community, establishing a church uh, in the uh, uh, city of Mariupol near uh, uh, on the Azov Sea. Uh, prayers for that whole region of Donetsk. Uh, several years later with our church, uh, wonderful South Fork Church of Christ in Winston-Salem, of which Grace has been a member uh, for so many years. Uh, we sent uh, teams there for uh, several years, including three years that I participated in to work with kids with summer youth Bible camps, uh, distributing Bibles uh, donated and given by uh, that wonderful, incredible ministry, uh, Eastern European Mission, uh, that does that work through contributions of people. So eem.org would be the place for you to go to learn more about that great ministry. Uh, but there are still a group uh, that goes uh, from South Fork when it's possible and works with uh, summer youth uh, Bible camps and tries to help um, provide children and counselors and staff, uh, families, people with um, the love and word of God. And what a great blessing that was to me. But while we were there, <laughs> it was uh, it was difficult circumstances and uh, uh, lots of great stories about that. But this this week, uh, being told to boil water before you drink it or use it for consumption. Uh, not having electricity reminds us that there are many places in the world that uh, that's not quite so easy as it has been for us. So it's a great opportunity for us to once again thank those workers that help make that happen and the families that have to do without their loved one when things like this past week go uh, go on to, so that the rest of us can have what we need. So thank you to all of you for that. And we pray God's richest blessings, especially on those who lost loved ones, who uh, have seen some very difficult times even still because of all of this. So uh, all of that to uh, go back to that theme of real power. Uh, it's not the electric power that we know of, although we love that. <laughs> that is for sure. But it is the power 
of Jesus Christ? What is real power? And how does Jesus demonstrate that? Well, um, Mark talks about real power in several different contexts here in Mark chapter 6. We're in this section where we're reading a lot about uh, Jesus' uh, ministry, some of his teaching, uh, some of the experiences that happened to him, and also about some of the great miracles that he performed. And that's where we are uh, in Mark chapters 5 and 6 and some of this section from the Gospel of Mark. So a few things about real power today from Mark chapter 6. First of all, real power is not just about miraculous power. It's not just that Jesus could do miracles. That's That wasn't the, the thing that makes Jesus the source of real power. And we see that in the first paragraph or two in Mark chapter 6. Uh, reading the first six verses, Mark chapter 6 verse 1, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Uh, remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that wasn't his hometown. Uh, his hometown was Nazareth. Uh, Luke kind of gives us a little bit different feel for that, uh, because Luke sees us as sees Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth, although they were from uh, Bethlehem. And, uh, and staying in Nazareth and then traveling from there down to Beth or up to Bethlehem because Judea, uh, that's province uh, south of Samaria and very far south of the, the province of Galilee where Nazareth, Capernaum are. A lot of Jesus' ministry took place in Galilee. Well, Judea is the southernmost uh, province there, yet it is the highest in elevation. And so a lot of times when you read something like uh, Joseph and Mary went down <laughs> to uh, Judea and to Bethlehem, that's how we would expect it to go. But instead it says they went up. And um, that's because south on the map, yes, but uh, farther up as far as elevation. Um, Luke says that they went uh, up to uh, Bethlehem from Nazareth. And um, Matthew, as he records it, we read kind of a, a, a little bit different take where Joseph and Mary are, are fleeing um, to Nazareth from uh, uh, Judea after going to Egypt. So um, either way, we understand that Jesus' hometown at this time now, his birth town was Bethlehem, but his hometown is Nazareth. And so these events are taking place there uh, where he was raised. And so verse, uh, verse 2, when the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, <laughs> except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, and we'll get to that section next. Uh, it's, it's interesting the way uh, scripture records these events, because in his hometown, it certainly describes his family. Uh, Joseph and Mary had Jesus in a miraculous, extraordinary, once-only way. 
Uh, it was not the natural way. Mary was still a virgin. Uh, the child was not uh, Joseph's biological child. It was the son of Mary by uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. So that, as Matthew said, uh, he would be called the son of God. He would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Um, but then after that, Joseph and Mary, uh, they had married, but they had kept separate uh, physically uh, until after Jesus was born. And then they had children the natural way. And their names are listed there, some of them, uh, including a couple of authors of New Testament books. Uh, James, who's not the brother of John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that James was the first apostle killed for the faith, as Acts chapter 12 records. Uh, but this James was the brother of Jesus, literally, uh, actually the half-brother uh, through their mutual mother, Mary, but the brother of Jesus, of course, being raised in the, in the household of Joseph and Mary. And then uh, also Judas, or Jude, the author of the book of Jude. Uh, all of Jesus' family had trouble believing in him while he was still alive, uh, and yet after his death, burial, and resurrection, Obviously, when they saw some of those things, they they turned towards him rather than away from him. We see that in his mother, Mary, and we certainly see that in James and Jude and probably his other uh, siblings as well. Well, here in his hometown in Nazareth, um, Jesus, uh, Mark records, Jesus not doing very many miracles. Why? Because they had a lack of faith. It's interesting, if you read the Gospels closely, and I know you do, then you pick up on some things. And especially if you read them through, like on a daily Bible reading, once through the year version or something like that. Uh, I'm reading through the Gospels again this year uh, and the rest of the New Testament as well, one chapter a day, but also reading a chapter out of the book of Isaiah and then later a book, the book of Psalms every day. Um, which will get me through the year. But if you read through the Gospels regularly, you see some things and you, you think through some things. And this is one of those things. There are sometimes when Jesus, like it says here, doesn't do miracles because of the lack of faith. But there are other times where someone doesn't really exhibit great faith and yet he still does a miracle. He still heals them. Sometimes he uh, sees, as we saw uh, uh, in Mark, as we'll see in the Gospel of Mark, this, this man who brings his son to Jesus and he, he, um, he's not sure Jesus can help him, but he wants him to and he wants to believe. And so he cries out, help my unbelief, that great story uh, in Mark chapter nine. Um, we also see other places where uh, it's, it's mentioned that they just, one person Jesus heals and the authorities ask him who did it. And he says, I can't tell you his name. I don't know. Well, and but here uh, they should have believed. Here they knew him. They knew the stories and yet they refused to believe. And so Mark says they just they just wouldn't um, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't believe. And so Jesus held off doing a lot of miracles with them. Uh, the story continues in Mark chapter six, verse seven, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. You've heard that saying, haven't you? 
They went out and preached that people should repent. That was the message of John. We'll read about again in a moment. That was the message of Jesus. That's the message he sends these apostles out to proclaim, repent. Um, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So Jesus gives his apostles authority to do miraculous works and sends them out. Matthew 10 gives us a, a little bit further uh, information about this whole event and gives us some more details, including uh, Jesus telling them, look, uh, people are not going to respond well to you. They're going to uh, reject your message just like they did Isaiah's message when he received his great call in Isaiah 6 and saw that vision and said, here am I, send me. Well, God warned him uh, they're, they're not going to respond. They're, they're not going to accept your message. Here, Jesus sends out the 12 and he says, look, some of them are going to be positive. And if they if they are supportive of you, then bless them. If they reject you, then shake the dust off your feet and move on. Great advice even for us today. We see Jesus sticking with people who are still interested, such as Nicodemus. He comes through in the Gospel of John a few different times. First in John 3. When he uh, comes to Jesus at night and Jesus kind of just messes up his whole world when he tells him that even you, Nicodemus, Mr. Synagogue Ruler, uh, Mr. Member of the Sanhedrin, you uh, must be born again of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. That throws Nicodemus. Uh, later on, we see him struggling with his faith in a council meeting about Jesus uh, at the end of John chapter 7. And then finally, we see Nicodemus coming around at the scene of the cross uh, at Calvary, Golgotha. And uh, uh, Nicodemus, along with a fellow council member, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, take the body of Jesus down and bury it in a tomb that Joseph had nearby, thereby proclaiming a public faith in Jesus and probably becoming marked men by the Jewish leaders. Well, Jesus didn't reject Nicodemus outright. Uh, he gave him time, and I think Jesus uh, does that. And as he sends these apostles out, we see them doing great miraculous signs uh, accompanying their preaching so that people would know that what they're saying is from God and that people would be willing to do what uh, uh, they call them to do, and that is to repent, to change their lives to accept the message that John had preached, first of all, and now Jesus and his apostles were preaching as well, the message of repentance. Um, real power, but however, real power is not just about miraculous power and signs. Uh, real power goes deeper than that. Uh, the apostles were amazed that they had the power they had, and Jesus encouraged them in that. Uh, but he also told them that they are going to suffer greatly, which um, all of them uh, did, except, of course, for the one who would betray him. Uh, secondly, in this chapter, real power is not just about political power. Probably a message that we need to hear, especially in our country, because we recognize uh, the political powers. We've seen uh, a lot about that over the last few years, especially, but really all of my life. Uh, I've seen that back and forth of political power. We see it again now, and there's a lot being said about that. But this passage that we're about to read is a reminder that um, uh, political leaders who <laughs> are unjust, uh, who do not have the interests of God and their citizens in mind uh, primarily, uh, that's not anything new. 
And this story that we read now is a very tragic one indeed. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. And remember when Jesus asks his disciples in Matthew 16, his apostles, who who do people say that I am? These are the answers they give, uh, exactly the answers that they give. Verse 16, however, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now we're going to hear a story about uh, King Herod. For Herod himself, verse 17, had given orders to have John arrested. This is a flashback, if you will. You would think that modern movies are the only ones that do that, where you're watching a movie and you're thinking, wait, did I miss something? And then all of a sudden it jumps back 10 years or four years or more, and you get to hear uh, the story behind the story. Well, that's what happens here. Uh, Mark introduces the story, introduces what Herod is thinking about Jesus, and then tells um, what had happened. Verse 17, for Herod had himself given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. We know that part because we've read in other places uh, how John sends disciples to Jesus asking, hey, are you really the one I'm here rotting in jail in prison, and I don't see you sending any angels to come get me out of here? And then he gets the response, hey, look, people are being helped. The, the, uh, the sick are, are being healed. The poor are hearing the gospel. Um, um, yes, yes, I am the one. Herod did this, put John in jail, because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. So a little bit about these Herods. It's kind of confusing, and I can tell you, I don't know, I don't know all the ins and outs of this. I have to look at the charts in my study Bible, or look it up online, or something in a good Bible encyclopedia or Bible dictionary. Uh, We'll give you an article about Herod and that family line uh, that had connections uh, by blood with the Jews and had taken over power through the Romans and through uh, their own um, willingness to basically sell themselves and their family, their people out. Uh, This is Herod Antipas. Uh, The first husband of Herodias was uh, Herod Philip. And Philip and Antipas were both sons of Herod the Great, and so they were brothers. Uh, And Herod the Great was the Herod at the time of Jesus. He was that insecure monarch who was ruling because the Romans led him uh, in Judea and that area. And when he heard that there was another king of the Jews from the Magi, he told them, hey, look, let me know where he is so that I can go worship him too. And, uh, and found out from the Jewish leaders who told him, well, the prophet Micah, as we talked about on Wednesday night in a Facebook class, uh, the prophet Micah said it will be in Bethlehem where the king is born. And so Herod had uh, the baby boys killed there. Probably not as many as some uh, would say because Bethlehem is a very small town still, but a tiny town then. But even if it's just one, it's too many. It's tragic. It's horrifying. And um, But that was Herod, and he did that, and he had them killed. Well, that was Herod the Great, and then Herod the Great had sons, including Herod, uh, Philip, and Antipas. Uh, they were brothers, and the Herod that's in power now uh, during the, the ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist is um, Herod Antipas. 
uh, both Philip and Antipas uh, were uncles uh, of um, uh, of uh, Herodias. Um, Herodias being a grandson of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was a ruler in Galilee, and he's the one that Pilate sent Jesus to. He's the one that uh, Jesus didn't seem to give any interest in responding to at all. Uh, doesn't do any miracles. Herod uh, tries to get him to perform some miracle, um, and uh, Jesus would not do it. Uh, preaching to people from all walks of life, uh, from the big big guns of political power to the nobodies. That's what uh, God's people are called to do, and that's what John the Baptist did. And um, we'll keep reading the story. Uh, he did this. John spoke to him and condemned Herod because of Herodias, who is his brother Philip's uh, wife, that, um, that Herod Antipas had in an unscriptural marriage. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Uh, so this Herod, Herod Antipas, had some good things uh, going on inside of him, much like the governor, Pontius Pilate, uh, in uh, Jerusalem but um, not enough. Uh, Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. He was challenged by his teaching, but he liked it. He liked to listen to him. Verse 21, finally the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Of course, he wouldn't give her half his kingdom, but that's basically their way of saying, I'm going to give you whatever you ask for. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And her mother said, the head of John the Baptist. Herodias had nursed this grudge against John the Baptist who had condemned her immoral lifestyle. And, um, and she never, never got past that. Never repented, um, certainly was seeking revenge. At once, verse 25, the girl hurried into the king with a request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. You know, when you speak truth to power, there's risk. When you stand for the word of God, even when it's not a message that people want to hear, it's a risk. We talked this morning in our Bible class in our Family Life Center about taking calculated risks, being willing to think them through, uh, but also being willing to trust God when he's calling you to step out in faith. The prophet Nathan rebuked King David because of his sin with Bathsheba and the, the killing of Uriah uh, to try to cover up his adulterous affair with Uriah's wife and now 
to pretend and to try to give the message that the baby that they would have uh, was one that was born in wedlock and not out. Um, and Nathan confronted David about his sin. Of course, David repented. We read about Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, confronting Ahab and Jezebel. Um, and uh, Jezebel did not take it well at all and threatened to kill Elijah. We read about uh, Mordecai um, with in the story of Esther, this man Haman, who was an enemy of Mordecai because Mordecai only worshiped God and now was uh, uh, going to kill not just Mordecai, but all of his people, which would mean Esther as well. And Mordecai sent word to Esther saying, look, you've got to, you've got to go before the king. Uh, well, that's a, another time where both Mordecai and Esther um, uh, stood up to powerful people that risk and risk their lives so that the good and the right would, would happen. One person has written, Herodias could not bear the thought of the continued existence of this uncultured, politically incorrect wilderness dweller, John the Baptist, whose speech and lifestyle interfered with her way of life. Aren't you glad that nobody today is like that? <laughs> well, I think there's two things we learn from this. Number one, that um, people are like that today. But number two, and I think it's all even just as much important, especially in our current cultural discussion these days, and that is that this is not anything new. It's not anything new. This is not something that began with uh, Joe Biden. It's not something that began with Donald Trump. It's not even something that began with the United States of America. Uh, this goes back to all of human history, that uh, people in power, people who have power to do things, even though they're wrong, uh, can be selfish and do bad things. Not all of them, uh, but uh, a lot of them. And that's nothing new, nothing new. It goes back, uh, as we said, uh, to Mordecai and Esther, to Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel, to David uh, and the prophet Nathan. It goes back to the earliest of mankind to see uh, selfish actions by those who simply did it because they could. Um, Herodias didn't get mad. She got organized. She waited until the perfect political opportunity to get rid of her enemy, and, and she did. Um, and it's a hard and horrible and tragic thing. Herod realized the politics of the situation as well, as did the executioner. You see, nobody in there stopped what was clearly an act of great uh, cruelty and injustice. Uh, but um, no one spoke up for justice. No one spoke up for truth. No one spoke up for John, clearly an innocent man just as no one spoke up for Jesus. Um, real power is not just about political power. Next, thirdly in this passage, real power is not just about power over nature. We've seen some incredible things already in the Gospel of Mark, and here's another one uh, that uh, Matthew also records uh, in Matthew chapter 14. Uh, immediately, verse 45, Jesus made his disciples uh, I'm sorry, let's start with verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. 
It's interesting that in um, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew sees this as Jesus going away when he hears the news about John, uh, his relative, perhaps cousin of some sort, maybe a distant cousin, but a relative and, and a partner in ministry, uh, preparing the way for Jesus, as Isaiah 40 described John's work. Um, when Jesus heard he had been killed, he went off by himself with his disciples to pray and to meditate uh, because of this great loss in his life. Um, but then he responds with compassion. He sees the multitude of people, thousands of people, knowing what he's going to do. Still, he tells the disciples, um, let's, uh, let's give them something to eat. So they went away by themselves to this solitary place and, and uh, thinking probably about some of the things that were going along uh, that they had experienced already, especially with John. Uh, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Um, a great description of us without our Lord. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Uh, let them go so they can go to the food court and find something to eat um, because they think that's the only option. Jesus knows better. Verse 37, but Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. And I wonder if he said that with a smile because he knew that it would be impossible by human standards uh, to do that. Uh, they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? And the answer, of course, is no. How many loaves do you have? He said, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. As John records this in John chapter six, we realize that there's a little boy who had brought his lunch, <laughs> unlike a lot of the other people. And, um, and we realize that uh, Jesus takes this uh, incredible situation and and demonstrates the power of God. Verse 39, then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Jesus does this at least twice. And, um, and we see him doing something incredibly uh, miraculous. Uh, and, and it is. It is a power over nature. As he feeds uh, the thousands of people. Uh, and he's going. we're going to read about that again. In the very next, uh, in a couple of chapters in Mark uh, chapter 8. Uh, but Jesus uh, tells them, it's funny, he tells them, you give them something to eat. And he takes what they have and he does it in an incredibly miraculous way, demonstrating his power over nature. Um, but that's not the only example of that in Mark chapter 6. And the words that follow in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. We see several instances, sometimes all night, 
Jesus going off by himself and praying. And again, you've heard me say this before, if you've heard my messages, and that is the most um, uh, powerful passages of scripture commanding us to pray are simply these two words, Jesus prayed. Here's another example of the Son of God praying himself. He felt the need to communicate with the Father. Certainly, we should as well. Verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. I think that's an interesting side note. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Right there with you on that one, guys. I would be scared to death. I would be hiding under something. Even though the boat was small, I'd find something. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. As you read through the Gospels, note how many times Jesus tells people that exact thing. Don't be afraid. At his resurrection, when he appears to the disciples, he tells them, don't be afraid. He tells us the same thing today. Uh, then he climbed into the boat, verse 51, uh, with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So it was just one thing after another that they weren't quite getting. Uh, and when Matthew chapter 14 records this, uh, Peter actually gets out of the boat and walks on the water as well for a few steps. Again, we mentioned this passage as we were talking about that lesson from Amy Morin's book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Um, uh, one of the things is they don't avoid taking calculated risks. And for Esther, we mentioned her this morning, but we also talked about Peter. And that story in Matthew 14, Matthew's the only one that records Peter actually getting out of the boat to join Jesus. Uh, Peter says, look, if it's you, Lord, then bid me come to you. Tell me to come to you. And, and so it's a, he doesn't just jump out of the boat, which would have been a very, very Peter kind of thing to do. But instead, he, he asks for Jesus' blessing on that. And Jesus gives it to him, and so he does it. To Peter's credit, he's the only one that gets out of the boat and walks on the water for a few steps. But as you know the story, he begins to see all the conditions around him, starts thinking, what in the world have you done, Peter? And begins to sink and cries out to Jesus. And Jesus lifts him up out of the sea of Galilee and puts him back there, all of a sudden back on the boat. Um, and that great hymn inspired by that story, I was sinking deep in sin, uh, far from the peaceful shore and love lifted me. A uh, great, great story about Jesus and Peter. I mentioned the book this morning from John Ortberg, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. <laughs> One of my favorite book titles, but also a really very good, uh, very good book uh, that I think catches a lot of the things related to that story. Here in Mark chapter 6, it doesn't talk about Peter walking on the water, just Jesus. And the disciples can't figure it out. They've never seen such power. They've never seen someone be able to calm the storm as we've seen. Uh, they've never seen someone be able to walk on water. Uh, and uh, they're, they've never seen someone able to miraculously feed thousands of people. Um, but again, real power is more than that. Real power is more than that. So as this great chapter ends, we realize that real power is actually believing and trusting in Jesus.
um, the last paragraph here in Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Much like the woman we read about who had the bleeding disorder and came and just touched, as the traditional translation says, the hem of his garment. Uh, much like at the very beginning of this chapter, Jesus uh, being able to heal people because of their faith, faith in his power. It's more than just believing in the miracles. Uh, lots of people did that. Uh, the religious leaders put Jesus to death because they couldn't answer the miracles. They couldn't uh, answer the people who ask, well, what about these things that he does? What about these signs? What about this man, Lazarus, who's standing there? after having been dead for four days. How do you explain that? Well, they refused to believe, and so they missed out on the real power. Real power is believing and trusting in Jesus. Uh, why is that? Why is believing and trusting in Jesus real power? Because it is the only power that truly saves. As we're discussing from the book of Romans on Sunday mornings at West Irwin Church of Christ, um, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew, then to the non-Jew. Because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, beginning to end. Just as Habakkuk said, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, we uh, trust in God. We believe in Jesus. And because of that, we are able uh, to be saved by his power, not by our own. Paul would talk about that also in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As he said, you know, um, the power of God, some think that it's weakness, some think that it's silly, unbelievable, a scandal even. The Jews felt that way, but the power of Jesus is the cross. It's the cross of Christ, the Son of God leaving heaven, coming, being uh, born into the most humble circumstances, living a life of humility and service, uh, but demonstrating the real true power of God and giving his life on the cross. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, the old hymn says. Another great hymn says this, and we'll end with this. I believe in the one they call Jesus. I believe he died on Mount Calvary. I believe that the tomb was found empty, and I believe that he's the answer for me. God bless you.